Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 156, recorded on September 27th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. Let's start this week with the big news from Lenovo for Ubuntu users. What Canonical says is 30 Lenovo ThinkPad and ThinkStation machines. And looking down the list, it's all of the ThinkPads that I can think of, the P-series, the X-series, the T-series, and also the desktops as well. So this is a good chunk of machines from Lenovo, pre-installed with Ubuntu 20.04. Yeah, it's not just laptops, it's also the ThinkStations, the ThinkPad P-series, plus 14 additional ThinkPad TX and X1 and L-series models. But what is also notable is this is really building on a program that was internal to Lenovo, but difficult for consumers to get access to. You had to go through a business rep, etc. And it was only still even more limited devices. But now they seem to be widening this up. In fact, there's a quote from Lenovo's vice president of PCSD Software and Cloud. And it reads, our goal is to remove the complexity and provide the Linux community with the premium experience that our customers know us for. This is why we have taken the next step to offer Linux-ready devices right out of the box. Of course, this follows on from the recent Fedora machines that Lenovo announced. So now you've got a choice of Fedora or Ubuntu pre-installed, which is pretty cool. Right. Now, not all of the devices are available yet. And I think that's probably true for the Fedora side of things as well still. But this is a global rollout that'll continue through 2020 and phases of 2021 even. And this is excellent news for the Linux desktop. Of course, it's nice to have a big OEM like Lenovo shipping pre-installed laptops. But what you have to understand here is that Lenovo have paid Canonical in order to certify these machines. That's how it works. They have this uh, lab in Taipei canonical and if you want to get your hardware certified you have to pay them and my understanding is it's quite a lot of money and each individual device costs a certain amount i would imagine a deal was done but still that is money going into canonical for what is essentially linux desktop and so come the ipo or the sale or whatever happens these are going to be good numbers to point to on spreadsheets to say that the desktop is making money and so fears of them abandoning it in favor of just cloud and IoT and everything, I think are unwarranted. Reading this news gave me a, a big smile. In the past, we have missed opportunities during certain industry transitions. And right now, desktop Linux, especially on the laptops, is looking real good. And let's just say, hypothetically, there is a small percentage of MacBook Pro users that don't want to switch to ARM, maybe because they're their end target that they're developing for is on x86. They want to stay on the x86 platform. Why not move to the Linux that they're running in the cloud since they don't like the direction Apple's going? In the past, we had some transitions like Unity to GNOME Shell that didn't go very well, and we lost a lot of users to macOS, in my opinion. But this time around, we've got some great systems from Lenovo now. You've got great systems from independent Linux providers like System76 and Entraware. And Dell is really at the top of their game. I have right now in the studio the Dell Precision 5750 in for review that will feature on a future Linux Unplugged. This is a seriously powerful system. I mean, this is the this is the peak of what I've ever seen Dell build. And I feel like we have a lot of really good answers for people that maybe are ready for a little hardware variety. And instead of only one hardware, one OS, they can switch to Linux and choose the hardware platform they want. And oh, by the way, look at all these great options, which are, oh, by the way, once again, targeted right at developers in the DevOps market. Yeah, and instead of having to try and convince the IT department that you're going to install a separate operating system on the machine that they provide for you, which 
often doesn't go well, I hear. This is pre-installed with support from the OEM. There's nothing third-party about it. This is a proper certified Linux machine. Right? I absolutely, absolutely got the okay from IT one time because I was able to point to Dell's website and say, look, they sell machines with this now. Yeah, but then you presumably installed Arch or something instead of Ubuntu. <laughs> you know, I did. I also got to think that. <laughs> <laughs> but you get the idea. It did, it did make my case. Now, let's talk about the case for Endeavor OS on ARM devices, which landed this week. Yeah, along with the September release of the x86 version, which I tried and was solid as ever, they are now supporting ARM devices. Only a few to start with. Three Android devices, the Raspberry Pi 4B, which I think most people will be trying this on. And they offer some instructions for some other devices like the Pinebook Pro. But right now, the kind of official support is the Android and Raspberry Pi devices. And I tried it on a Raspberry Pi 4. Unfortunately, it's not just an image that you flash. You have to jump through a few hoops to get it working. But at the end of it, I had an XFCE desktop on top of Arch with the Endeavor OS theming, and it looked pretty nice. I got to say, I don't get it. Uh, with all the love to Endeavor OS and its predecessor, Integros, um, not really getting this one. So the few steps that you have to take is you get Arch going on a Raspberry Pi, which granted isn't complicated, but isn't a sentence that you're going to want to tell most users, uh, at least beginning users. And then you set up some repos and point a shell script and let the magic script set up the rest of the system for you. And then you end up essentially with an Endeavor OS desktop that's been converted from Arch. Um, Not a big fan of converting a base install over to something else post-install, A, number Number A, <laughs> and number B, if you will, <laughs> now I'm in, uh, Manjaro, just you get Arch and you flash it right to the SD card and go, or Raspberry Pi OS, or any other basic distro that you can get going on the Pi. You just flash the image and go, and that's kind of one of my favorite things, is it reminds me of the floppy disk era, where I'd have a boot disk, and I would just boot from that, and... In this case, I would have to set aside these SD cards with this Arch environment that's ready to go, and I just don't really see the value of it, other than really, really early testing. Well, I'm going to defend it then, because this is not an ordinary Arch install, which is not particularly difficult, but it is very time-consuming, and you have to follow the instructions or learn how to do it. And, okay, once people are practiced at it, they can do it really quickly or whatever. But for the average person who wants a relatively vanilla Arch installation with XFCE, this is very, very easy to do, much, much easier than messing around with a normal Arch installation. All you have to do is clone the Git repository, run one script, which flashes it onto the SD card, put that into the Pi, configure it a little bit, which is all just self-explanatory, and then clone another Git repository, run another script, wait, and then boom, you've got it all done. It's much like Endeavor OS x86 version. It's just giving you a convenient way to get more or less vanilla Arch. And Manjaro is great, but it's not vanilla Arch, is it? It's Arch with a bunch of value add. I agree there's value to that. I also like the idea of being able to get Arch up and going on a Pi a little bit faster, but I'm going to just say I think you probably lose 90% of the people at clone the Git repo. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, this is not for people who want to use a GUI to um, flash the SD card and then just get going straight away. This is for people who have some experience with Arch but just want a shortcut. 
Yeah, I think the thing that kind of puts me off about it, and one of the reasons I don't run Vanilla Arch on my pies, is unfortunately the sad truth is these ARM devices are still not in a general universal state where you can throw any distro at them. You need, I think, still some upstream curation that is packaging things specifically for the pie or even maybe making deals with certain vendors. Sort of the value add that... Manjaro brings to Arch on ARM or Ubuntu brings to Debian on ARM, etc. It's these these vendors at this level are actually really adding usable value in this area. And in sometimes they make it even possible to, to use certain hardware aspects of the device that aren't enabled by default with the more basic distributions. Arch is a bit of an edge case because it has such a modern kernel that it almost immediately has everything upstream that these other projects are working on. But I still kind of feel like we're in that transitionary phase. Maybe by the time 2021 rolls around or the next Raspberry Pi comes around, I won't feel this way. But right now, if I'm running a Raspberry Pi and I'm going to use it in production, there's really only two Linux distributions I'm running on there at the moment because I'm not a big fan of Raspberry Pi OS directly, just not for me. It's great for new users, but it's not just really targeted at me. So I'm sticking with either Ubuntu 20.04 LTS or Manjaro. And I think if you're not running those distros, there's things that just kind of lack or are missing. Yeah, that's definitely true. Like hardware acceleration and things like that are just not quite there with the other distros. So yeah, I do take the point. But some people just want to run relatively vanilla Arch. And choice is good is kind of where I'm coming from. But yeah, you are right, ultimately. Well, choice is good. And that's why Microsoft is releasing Edge for Linux at least in beta next month. Yeah, we've kind of been expecting this for a while. We knew earlier this year that it was going to come to Linux, and even when it was first announced on Windows that it was going to be based on Chromium, we thought, well, there's a good chance it will come to Linux. Well, now we have a date, or at least a month, and that is next month, October. And we also have a little bit of information about the packaging now. It's going to be available as either an RPM or a DEB, Not a snap, though, which I'm surprised about because of Microsoft's relationship with Canonical. I think this is a very easy story for the Linux enthusiast to dismiss because who amongst us is likely going to opt to use Edge? Probably not many. But this may be one of the biggest tells in what Microsoft's direction is that we have seen since they started to love Linux. This is a huge data point, and I want to get into this for a moment because I, I think this indicates a global strategy by Microsoft that we should talk about. So let's start with what we know here. Edge's value from Microsoft, they have said this directly, is that this is the business browser. Yeah, that's how they actually position it as Edge is the Chrome for business. So they kind of have acknowledged that the Blink engine seems to be the way to go. So now the value that Microsoft feels like they can bring is, we'll adult up Chrome. We'll get it ready for the enterprise. This is Chromium, but for the enterprise. Now that's something, because Chromium is an open source project. And it's Microsoft signaling that we can take open source or free software, and we can package it up, and we can deliver it for enterprise. And it's perfectly leveraging their brand, which is known for building things for enterprise customers. And I think it betrays an insecurity that is deep inside a lot of large, old-school corporations that CTOs and others hold, and that is that free software isn't enterprise-ready. 
that it needs to be packaged up and sold to them. And that's what Microsoft can come along and do. And if you think about it, there's no reason that this logic can't apply to anything in open source and free software. Anything where there's an opportunity to come along and package up, say, the work of Google in this case, and add value that resonates for their customers is going to be an easy slam dunk. And so by bringing Edge over to Linux, what they are saying is, business world, you will now have one browser to focus your support on, one browser to focus your security policies and your manuals on. You can standardize on Edge, which will be compatible with anything that works with Chromium. It's business safe. Yeah, that's clearly the market they're going after. But I think the enthusiasts are not going to be having this. It's weird that a lot of people will just install Chrome without thinking, and that's just a random proprietary Deb or RPM or whatever. But somehow they don't trust Microsoft. And you asked us this week, I think it was in Slack, who would you prefer to trust or who do you trust the most out of Google and Microsoft? And I thought about it, and I don't know. I think ultimately... Google probably, because they know all my stuff anyway. They know everything about me. Yeah, that surprised me, but it was a good answer. It's like, well, I've already, I've already revealed everything to Google, so now why reveal something to Microsoft? And we'll link in the show notes to a research paper on the telemetry uh, and identity tracking that Edge apparently does. I can't speak authoritatively to it, but we will have some, some data there. Now, I, I thought about that too, and I thought, yeah, but... <laughs> yeah, but um, the thing is, Google is institutionally aligned to exploit that data. It's literally in the fabric of the company to exploit mm. and utilize data, whereas Microsoft, kind of like Apple, but not nearly as severe, is not a data-first company. They have, they have quickly figured out how to utilize it, especially in terms of bug metrics and Windows data collection metrics. But if you look at the information that Microsoft su- supposedly has been collecting now for years from Windows Vista on, I don't see them building the same personalized systems and, and ad curation systems that I see coming from Google. It, it sort of seems like it's just sitting in a SQL database somewhere. And I'm not saying I'm comfortable with it, but I... I may actually trust Microsoft's incompetence to execute on the data more than I trust Google with my data, because I know Google will execute and do something with that data. Yeah, I suppose Microsoft's a bit of a halfway house because they do have ads in Windows 10 and the start menu and stuff. So they do try at least with that stuff. But yeah, I think you're right that Google does a lot better of a job with your data and, and targeting ads and everything. It's funny, you know, speaking of Microsoft... Eric Raymond wrote a piece this week about the desktop wars, pretty much agreeing with what I'd said, that Microsoft's end goal is to pretty much move to a Linux-based system. Ooh, that really seems still far out there, but uh, this is his pitch. ESR says, Microsoft Windows becomes a Proton-like emulation layer over a Linux kernel with the layer getting thinner over time as more of the support lands in the mainline kernel sources. Which, to his point here, Joe... We have seen uh, kernel patches to improve WSL support land. Um, We haven't seen them integrated yet, but we have seen them sent in for review. Uh, He goes on to say here, though, that the economic motive is that Microsoft sheds an even larger fraction of its development costs, and less and less has to be done in-house. So I guess the argument here could be, look at the advantage they have with taking the Blink source code and Chromium. They saved years of having to invent a new web engine. It, it, they, and that's even after they, they invested decades into Triton. Um, so could you imagine the cost if they had to invest another couple of decades into an entirely new web engine? Mm. Instead, they can just take Chromium. Yeah, I think it's still out there, and I don't think it's that likely. 
definitely not anytime soon, but it's interesting to read that just a few days after I'd said something quite similar. Yeah, he says the best evidence is the fact that Microsoft has done this with Edge. He says it only makes sense that as part of this, this is a test to get Windows users using software on both platforms, and that he had envisions that eventually you would just remove aspects of the emulation layer and more and more become native until it's just the really edge case applications. He kind of wraps it up as this. He says the end state is the new Windows is mostly a Linux kernel. There's an old Windows emulation over it, but Edge and the rest of the Windows user land utilities don't use emulation. That emulation layer is there only for games and legacy third-party software. He says economic pressure alone will, will cause this, and also cause Microsoft to deprecate the emulation layer over time to the point where third-party software providers will stop shipping Windows binaries in favor of ELF binaries with a pure Linux API. And that essentially Windows will get co-opted. And that's how Linux will win the desktop war is kind of by just taking it all over. (laughs) Well, like I say, dare to dream. Linux.ting.com. Ting is mobile that makes sense. You just, you pay for what you use. Nationwide coverage, three carriers to choose from. I'm on Verizon right now. And no contracts. So you don't get you locked into something. And honestly, if you can, bring your device. If you go to Linux.ting.com, click on the check your phone. And when you go there, you just put in the information about your phone and they'll tell you what your situation is compatibility-wise. If you have a compatible device, that's the way to go because you'll get a $25 service credit And that's likely to pay for more than your first month. Average Ting bill for a line after your usage is $24. And you can get a device directly from Ting as well if you think maybe it's time. They've got everything from the Pixel 4a and the iPhone SE directly, and of course the latest Moto and Galaxy phones. But they also have the new mobile. Check out the new mobile device. I know, I'd never heard of it either. I I had not heard of it. But it's $79 brand new. But if you go to linux.ting.com, they'll give you $25 towards a new device. You can get this brand new flip phone. (laughs) It's It's a flip phone with like forever battery, LTE data support. It's actually pretty great. And you can once again flip the phone down to hang up on people. It's got a front facing screen too with just a basic clock on it. But what else do you need? And it's got a camera. So, you know, so should the worst happen, you need to take a picture of it. You can do it. You can go simple with Ting or you can go as luxury as you want. Get started at linux.ting.com. Go over there, read a little bit about it, see how they do things a little differently, like their control panel, which I don't know why the rest of the industry hasn't ripped this thing off. Their dashboard is the best. You can see all your usage at a glance. You can take complete control. You can set usage alerts. You can nickname lines. So if you got a couple of lines for your kids or a partner, it's super easy to keep track of everything. And when you need help, either in the app or on the phone, there's a real person there to help you. So get started at linux.ting.com, support the show, and get a $25 service credit or $25 towards your first device. That's linux.ting.com. Another week and another project that is being spun out of Mozilla. And this time it's Mozilla Web Things, their Internet of Things platform. Yeah, there seems to be two trajectories at this point for a former Mozilla project. Either they just shut it down completely, like we saw recently with Firefox Send and Firefox Notes, and yeah, maybe the code's available, but as a project and a structure and an organization, it is no more. And then you have the web things and some of the other projects route, which there seems to have been enough momentum and enough adoption that they can survive independently of the Mozilla organization. And that's what's happening here with web things. Uh, David Bryant writes, 
on the Mozilla discourse. We're writing to inform you that the WebThings project is being spun out of Mozilla as an independent open source project. Mozilla is winding down its direct involvement with WebThings and is transitioning control and responsibility to the community. WebThings is what powers a gateway that runs on your LAN that controls your IoT devices, so they don't have to rely on cloud services. Uh, Similar to how I use Home Assistant, WebThings was another option. Now, the good news here, Joe, is that it does seem to be like a a transition path to the community-supported version. So if people are using WebThings right now as an IoT gateway, they're not SOL. Their support will continue, I guess I should say. Why did you never use this then? The same way I've picked a lot of open source projects in the past thinking about it, it started with the community. There was just a lot of community activity around Home Assistant. There was a lot of excitement in our audience. And you know how it goes when you start getting messages that are like, hey, you should really check this thing out over here. This is pretty, have you seen this? You know, you get a couple of those and Mm. another couple of days go by and you get a couple more. You're like, oh, maybe there is something. So Home Assistant had that going for it. You know, there's other ones like this, too. There's there's platforms from from Dell and the Linux Foundation that were created, and th- I haven't seen a, a big uptick in that adoption either. And, and it really kind of seems like what happened was is these projects were created, and they are successful to degree, but their success is limited in how much they can integrate with proprietary solutions. Right, that's something else that Home Assistant is really good at, is there's thousands of different integrations to plug in with cloud providers that don't even necessarily have an API to cloud providers that do, to devices that are local, to devices that are cloud-controlled. It can work with all of it. And it just seems to have a really wide range of support because of that community, uh, where some of these other things, like web things, were a little more limited in their scope and not as easy to just throw on a Raspberry Pi or a VM or something you just tossed in Docker real quick and then it just auto-discovered all these devices on your network. They all have various versions of this, I was just never impressed by what WebThings offered. But I know it works for some people, and I know it's great in some business solutions, too. It just wasn't hitting my buttons. But the good news is, as you said, they're not just abandoning this. They are going to hand it over to the community. And even if you've got a uh, MozillaIoT.org subdomain with them, that will still be available until the end of the year. Yeah, that seems to be the most abrupt change here, is if you are taking advantage of that MozillaIoT.org domain, you've got essentially a few months as we record this. And then I'd say the other thing you need to look out for is the project will have to transition how it issues updates. And those updates, instead of coming from Mozilla, will come from the project now. And so you'll have to opt into that, but they'll have more information on how you'll do that soon. But this is ultimately just part of a trend that we've been seeing for quite some time, where Mozilla just has to tighten the purse strings. They can't have too many of these projects, seemingly. They have to just shut them down and make sure they're not spending too much. I wish that were true, Joe. I wish what we saw here with Mozilla was a group that recognized the dire situation their Firefox web browser is in and were taking keen, decisive action to, as they like to say, forgive the expression because I think it's awful in this case, trim the fat. And they were just focusing on making Firefox as great as possible. But that's not what we're seeing here. That's what's so frustrating is another announcement from Mozilla this week is they're launching the European AI Fund, which is a ton of money. $1.6 million they're dumping into this thing, and it's completely 100% a social and political play. There is nothing about making Firefox better. 
Are they actually investing any money in this, though? Because they say in its first step, the fund will launch with a 1 million euro open call for funding. Doesn't that mean that they're looking for funding from elsewhere? Or the partners. It's a group of national, regional, international partners that are participating in this. And it seems Mozilla is in the driver's seat, at least to a significant degree here, because the shared project site shares a lot of language that's on the Mozilla announcement. The two mirror each other a lot. The reason why they're doing this and organizing this and putting all of their energy and effort and time, which is money as well, into this is they say, we seek to deepen the pool of experts across Europe who have the tools, capacity, know-how to catalog and monitor social and political impact of AI and data-driven interventions and hold them accountable for it. With this group of national and regional international foundations in Europe that will be dedicated to using their resources, financial and otherwise, to strengthen civil society. I mean, this sounds great, really, but this sounds like the kind of stuff that Apple should be doing. But Mozilla is a struggling company to even get users to even open their core product at this point. That's the reality we're at here. They continue on, making it clear that this entire effort is about social issues with... At Mozilla, we've seen firsthand the expertise that civil society can provide when it comes to the intersection of AI, consumer rights, racial justice, and economic justice. We've collaborated closely over the years with partners like the European Digital Rights, Access Now Algorithm Watch, and Digital Freedom Fund. So I looked into some of these groups, and I'm not impressed, Joe. I mean, I sent you some of the things I found about these groups, and none of this really seems to benefit Mozilla in the long term or Firefox. It is high gold, high moral. It's something that I can appreciate that they're putting effort into, but it just doesn't seem to match up with laying off over 200 developers. It doesn't seem to match up with cutting all of the projects. It doesn't seem to match up with all of the things we've seen about the slide in their market share and what they're trying to do to make that better. I, I don't get it. It's like they don't even realize the situation they're in. Yeah, when I was reading about this, it did strike me, as uh, a friend of mine would say, a tea-drinking, cake-eating boondoggle which is just sort of bureaucracy for its own sake almost, and that it won't necessarily achieve much beyond just more bureaucracy, which Mozilla just seems to be bogged down in. Yeah. Well, another story we've been following over the last couple of years is open source business models in the cloud era. And this week, Timescale DB have updated their license to hopefully find a good compromise. Yeah, I really like what's in here. So I'm going to say that up front because I'm also going to have a little fun at their expense. But if you're not familiar with Timescale DB, it's pretty slick. It offers massive scale, hundreds of billions of rows and millions of inserts per second on a single server, right? So we're talking like there's definitely a use case for this, especially at really large scale. And that's why its developer community includes engineers from Rackspace, IBM, DigitalOcean, Samsung, Siemens, Uber, Walmart, Warner Music, thousands of large companies that just have these massive data transactions use Timescale DB. So it's, it's a pretty important player. And it was one of the early ones to start experimenting with this. They landed on their license about two years ago. It's called the TSL which stands for Timescale License. Now, here's where I'm going to have a little fun with them because they, they kind of really go all in on this post, kind of really patting themselves on the back for paving the way, as it were. Um, but they write, 
Two years later, this experiment has been so successful, exceeding our expectations, that we're changing tons of stuff. They write, this experiment (laughs) has gone so well, we're announcing an update to the TSL that reinforces our commitment to the community and loosens lots of restrictions. Um, And they throw a few things in here like, you now have the right to repair, the right to improve. All enterprise features are now free. No more usage limits and simplified legalese. I mean, check, check, check. That's all really good stuff. It's just the whole buildup is about how successful it's been, but we think it needs these changes. I have to poke them a little bit of fun for that because it's essentially admitting it wasn't perfect. But now with these things in here, we may have ourselves here, Joe, a genuine model for others to follow. Yeah, that's kind of how I read it. They've managed to get the likes of Amazon to do business deals with them so that they can offer it as a service. And they've built this sustainable business model based on that. And hopefully other people will follow this. It's still not totally open source by the OSI definition, but the argument they make, which I think is pretty strong, is that the OSI model is just not fit for purpose in 2020 when we've got AWS, Azure, and GCP, and all the other cloud providers. It just doesn't make sense for certain projects to have a properly free and open source license. Yeah, that's essentially it. I'll add there are a couple of clearly not allowed things that are outlined on the website here. The one that sticks out to me the most is you can't redistribute modified source code. But there's a couple others in there as well. I think that's all overshadowed by what they have allowed here. The big one that's going to have knock-on ramifications for the industry is the removal of the enterprise tier. They're making all of the software under an Apache 2 or TSL license just available for free. There's not this weird like tier you have to buy. And they note that that actually simplifies things for them too. They don't have to have this internal debate now and which ones do we hold back for the enterprise tier and which ones do we make available for everyone. So I think that one big give here for the enterprise tier may be what really lasts is the big news ongoing and the fact that we now have something here with the timescale license that may prove to be a sustainable license model. Yeah, and I think the key thing here is that they differentiate between a value-added service and just hosting it as a service. So if you add timescale DB into your own project and build a service around that, that's fine as long as you're adding value, and that's what they clearly explain. So what they've done is pretty much make it an open source license for everyone apart from the cloud providers. And I remember when we talked about this, it must have been a couple of years ago, I said someone who is much, much cleverer than I am will come up with a solution to this. And here we are a couple of years later, and I think it is the solution that they need for this. Well, you may have noticed some of your favorite Jupiter Broadcasting shows are back, and you never know what we have in the works. You can get this show and all of our current and future productions in the All Shows feed. Just search for the All Jupiter Broadcasting Shows or find it at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. A quick PSA, if you're looking at reaching the perfect audience, we have an ad spot open in the month of October right here on this podcast. If you'd like to sponsor Linux Action News, send me an email, chris at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. You can find me at chrislass.com. And you can find me at joerest.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later. later.